my name is Brett Haas. My wife and I are new here since uh, about November, and we're working with the prime timers and the uh, sen- I'm the senior adult minister here at the church, and I've just absolutely fallen in love with this place, and I'm gra- glad to be here. Uh, my wife is back toward the back there somewhere, and uh, we've got our children with us this morning. We had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you did too, and looking forward to a wonderful new year. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those may be the most famous words that Jesus ever spoke, the most well-known that Jesus ever said, or perhaps, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But John 3.16 is known the world over as the words of Jesus. You're so familiar with them that if I asked you at this time, let's just say it together, just like the Our Father, you would most likely be able to quote those words of Jesus. And so it's with timidity I take these words up today to bring our message Because when something is so familiar, uh, we can lose interest. I want to take us back in time, if I can, to the first time those words were ever spoken. When Jesus Himself said these words, For God so loved the world. If you'll join me in your Bibles in John chapter 2, not 3, we're going to get the context surrounding Jesus' words that day. This was during His first year of public ministry. This was right about the time He had just come to Jerusalem for the Passover, the first of the Passovers during His ministry years. And Jesus, in chapter 2, He left Cana of Galilee and where he had done his first public miracle. He turned water into wine at a wedding. And leaving that wedding in Capernaum, the Bible tells us that he went down to, or from Cana, he went down to Capernaum and came to Jerusalem for the Passover. He made quite a stir in Jerusalem when he arrived. As he entered into the temple and he saw the changers of money and those that were selling sacrificial animals sitting in the temple, Jesus' ire raised. And he, the Bible tells us he fashioned a cord of, a scourge of cords and began to drive the animals and the people out of the temple. And he overturned their tables, coins flying everywhere. And Jesus told them, get these things out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. In doing this, they demanded of him a sign, a miracle, saying, why? Or what gives you the right to do this? What sign do you show us seeing you do these things? Jesus that day declared a couple of different things. First of all, he declared his deity. He said, get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. He claimed that day that God was his father. 
He had been making that claim since childhood. If you remember back in the Gospel of Luke, they, they lost him. Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem for the feast, and, and uh, Mary, Mary and Joseph, did I say Mary and Jesus? I did, didn't I? I said, Joseph, you know what I'm saying. Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem, and then Jesus was 12 years old at the time, and when they left to return home, they got halfway home and realized, where's Jesus? We've lost him. You know, kind of like the home alone thing, only he wasn't uh, at their home. He was at his home in the temple. When they found him, he was in the temple asking and answering questions from the rabbis, and they were amazed at his knowledge. And when Mary and Joseph found him, they said, Why are you here? What are you doing? And he said, Wist ye not, that's old English, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Well, Joseph was a carpenter. He wasn't talking about Joseph. He was in the temple, the place where God was worshipped, the place where sacrifice was made for the sins of the Jewish people. And he said, this is my home. This is my father's house. And so here that day when Jesus drove those animals out of the temple and declared, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. He was declaring His deity. Not only that, He was prophesying His death and resurrection. He said to them, destroy this temple. They asked Him for a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they were confused. 46 years it took to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? But the Bible tells us very clearly there, and Jesus knew what He was saying. He spake of the temple of His body. He was telling them, you're going to destroy My body, but I'm going to rise again. So Jesus declared His deity. He prophesied His death and resurrection. And while in Jerusalem at the Passover, look at verse 23, He did miracles. Verse 23 says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which he did. Jesus was a miracle worker. They asked for these miracles. They're called signs. And they're, the Jews, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul said the Jews require a sign. And they require a sign because that's how their nation began. When God sent Moses, as you recall, in the book of Exodus, into uh, Egypt to deliver his people, he sent him with two signs. He said, take that rod that's in your hand, throw it on the ground, now pick it up again. He threw it on the ground, it became a serpent. When he picked it up, it became a rod. He said, now put your hand in your bosom, pull it out, it was leprous. He said, put it back in again, pull it out, it was clean. He gave him two signs, turning that rod into a serpent and back into a rod, and then the healing of leprosy. And he said, when you go there, because Moses had said, they're not going to believe me when I go. He said, show them these two signs, and they'll believe. The signs are always given to back the message and the messenger. They're always given to prove that He's from God. And Jesus, when He came, they expected miracles because the Messiah, who had been prophesied, would come with signs and miracles. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 35 that when God would come to save them, that the Messiah would give sight to the blind... He would make the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and the dumb to speak. And here was Jesus in Jerusalem doing these things. 
And so many of the Jews in Jerusalem were believing on Him, saying, this is Him. This is the Messiah. He's come. This Jesus of Nazareth. And one night, in chapter 3, you'll go there to see this, um, one of the Jews, one of the ranking Jews, a man by the name of Nicodemus, comes to see Jesus at night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Nicodemus speaks to Jesus here, and not only is he speaking for himself, but he's speaking for others, most likely his uh, co-leaders in the Sanhedrin, because he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And we know that Jesus, when He speaks to him, speaks in both the, to the, the plural and to the singular. He speaks directly to him, and He also speaks to you all. In the Old English, it's ye. And in the Greek, it's a plural pronoun. And He says, ye, as we'll get to it here in a minute, must be born again. Ye is, the Texas translation is y'all. And so when Jesus tells him, y'all must be born again, He's talking not only to Nicodemus, but to others. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there were others with him. I've, I never really thought about that till about a year ago when I was reading this, the text. And I thought, wow, there might have been other people with him that night. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, so I won't say that. But Jesus clearly spoke not only to Nicodemus, he spoke to others as well. Maybe he was letting Nicodemus know you need to go tell the rest of them. But either way... He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do the miracles that you're doing except God is with him. Now, Nicodemus, the name means victorious among his people. He's, it means conqueror. Nicodemus is someone we should recognize. He's so like many of you in this room today. He's the kind of person we want to be. He's what we desire for our children to become. He was distinguished, respected, successful. He was a model citizen. And he comes to Jesus and he considers that this man might be the Messiah. No doubt he comes with questions to ask Jesus. Maybe he has a list of them. But when he comes to ask Jesus, he acknowledges him first as a rabbi. He says, we know uh, rabbi. So he, he acknowledges his authority to teach, and he confirms the validity of the miracles that Jesus did. He said, we know that you're come from God, for no man can do the miracles you do except God be with him. Now, I love reading the Bible, and I love getting these truths out of the Bible, because every year about Easter, you'll catch it sometime in March, Time or Newsweek or some magazine will come out and they'll say, the real Jesus. You know, and they'll give you the story on the real Jesus, the watered-down version who didn't do miracles. Because, folks, miracles can't be done. That's supernatural. You've got to be a kook to believe in that. And they'll give you all this stuff about Jesus and all the theories they have about how he really didn't die in the tomb, but he, he, he swooned and then he uh, revived in the coolness of the, womb, uh, of the, uh, uh, of the, the, the tomb. You know what? Um, I'll take the eyewitness account of a man who was there over some scholar sitting in a corner office somewhere sipping Diet Pepsi. Okay? Nicodemus said, we know you're from God. I've seen the miracles. We've seen the miracles. We know what you're doing. And before he can begin to ask his questions, Jesus cuts him off and says, 
if you're going to see God, if you're going to live in His blessed kingdom, if you are going to enjoy the joys and the blessings of heaven forever, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now imagine with me, if you would, that you have spent many years building a house. A house that you are now very proud of. It's been your life's project, a labor of love. You've personally worked on every inch of this house. You've chosen the nails and the screws and the boards that are in the floor. You've overseen the laying of the bricks. You've chosen the best materials, the fixtures, the furniture, the drapes, the appliances. This house is a tribute to your work, to your ingenuity, to your fashion, and to your skills. And you are continuously looking for ways that you can improve your already great house. And then you get the opportunity of a lifetime. A friend introduces you to a well-known couple from Waco. Chip and Joanna. You're like, wow, you know them? Well, maybe we can get together for lunch. I'd love them to come over and look at my house, and maybe maybe they can give me a couple of good suggestions. So you set a date, and you ask them over, and they come to look at your beautiful dream of a home, and you hope that they might make a suggestion or two that will make your home even better. They come over, you have lunch, and after lunch you show them around the grounds, you show them every room in the house, all the while thinking they'll suggest maybe taking down a wall and opening up a room or maybe extending your, your, your porch or your wraparound or some such thing. Finally, after seeing the house, they look at each other and in agreement, they say to you, this is a teardown. <laughs> You're devastated. What? A teardown? You're probably offended. This is your dream home. Listen, that is exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Your life is a teardown. I'm not here to make suggestions on how you could be better, Nicodemus. I'm telling you, you got to be born again. Because what you've got here is not going to cut it. Jesus says to this upstanding, well-respected leader in the community, your whole life needs to be lived again. It's a teardown. Now, like Nicodemus, you have a good education. Your achievements are impressive. Your relationships are healthy. Your work ethic is strong. You're admired. You're respected. But you, you know you're not perfect. Perhaps... God can help you out a little bit. Fill up what's missing in your life. It, it makes sense to us to look at it that way. It appeals to our pride. You've probably heard the phrase, let Jesus fill that God-shaped hole in your life. Your life is good. You just need a little improvement. You need Jesus to make you complete. That is not what Jesus is saying. He says, Nicodemus, your whole life needs to be remade. You must be born again. 
And if that doesn't happen, you'll not even see God's kingdom. You're not even close. Now, don't miss the fact that Jesus says this to Nicodemus and not Barabbas. You see, Barabbas was that man, that criminal that Pilate released the day that Jesus was crucified. See, Nicodemus is respected, but Barabbas is reviled. Nicodemus lived a very religious life. Barabbas lived a life of crime. It would surprise no one had Jesus said to Barabbas or to those like him, you must be born again. Perhaps a prostitute or a drug dealer or one of those detested tax collectors in Jesus' day. But no, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Barabbas represents the worst of us. He represents us at our worst. Nicodemus represents us at our best. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to you and I here, your best is not good enough. Your best won't cut it. The change that needs to happen is far more radical than you thought. How did Nicodemus respond? Well, inside, I don't, I'm sure he was probably raging. Who is this young rabbi? How dare he talk to me this way? Verse number 4, he asks a question. How? How can a man be born when he is old? And he kind of gives away a little bit of his stage in life there to us. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus was an old man. You know, the older we get, the more confirmed we get, and the more set we get in our ways. The older we get, the harder it is for us to change, even when we know we ought to change. And so the idea of changing is not easy for Nicodemus. But it's going to get even worse. Jesus is going to tell him, you can't even make the change. How can a man be born when he's old? He said, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, when, when he asked this question, I, I've wondered so many times, and you can't get it just in the reading because you weren't there. How did he ask this question? Was he serious? I don't think so. I think he was a smart enough man to know that you're not going back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. I don't think he was serious about that. Uh, maybe, was he seeking? Was he seeking some clarification? What do you mean by this, uh, going back into my mother's womb and being born? Or was he sarcastic? <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm going to get back in my mother's womb. I don't know his attitude in the question. But I know what Jesus' response was. In verse number 5, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, You must be born again, He's not giving him the gospel. You must be born again states the problem. Not the answer. You must be born again gives the disease, not the cure. 
You must be born again as a statement of the problem to which the gospel is the answer. If you tell someone you must be born again and that's all you tell them, you've not given them the gospel. You're like a doctor who offers a diagnosis but no prescription. When Jesus tells Nicodemus you must be born again, he's identifying the problem. The change that's needed is massive and it's not in your power to make the change. Look at verse 5. He says, born of water, born of the Spirit. Then he defines that for us in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Nicodemus, if you could go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time, it would do you no good. Because that fleshly birth is what got you into this fix in the first place. You can't fix this. This is not a do-over. There was a gentleman back in the, I think, 1920s. Um, wrote his name down here. Let me just look it up because my brain doesn't work as well as it used to. Um, here we go. Here I'll uh, His name was David. David Bernard. He was a Canadian. He was an amateur golfer. And he used to drive to the course. He had a regular foursome that they'd play every week or ever whenever. And uh, he would drive, and he drove a nice touring sedan, and we'd take his uh, fellow golfers, and they would get on the golf course. And one day on the first tee, he lines up to hit his tee shot, and it goes errant. And just out of nowhere, he reaches in his pocket, and he puts down another ball and goes to take a second shot. And his partners are looking at him and say, what? What? You can't do it. What are you doing? He said, I'm taking a correction shot. Now, you've probably done that. If you're, how many of you are golfers? I golf, but I'm not a golfer. <laughs> All you got to do is play with me. You'll figure that out. David Bernard Mulligan is the man who put that ball down on the all you golfers know who I'm talking about now. Because when you do that, you call it what? A mulligan. It's a do-over. Now, I've played in some golf tournaments, and you can go and you can buy mulligans or raising money for some cause. And, and so you can pay $5 or $10 or whatever to buy a mulligan. So you get a, an opportunity for a do-over if you hit a bad shot. The problem with me is... My do-over is oftentimes not as good as the, the bad when it started. What Jesus is saying here is it's the first birth is of the flesh. If you could go back and do it again. If you could get a do-over. Listen, every one of us in here knows that feeling of regret, of things done, of things wrong that we have done. And say, if I could go back and do it over, you'd mess it up again. We're not talking about a do-over here. We're not talking about a mulligan. Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The works of the flesh are manifest, Paul said. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, etc., etc. It's inherent in the system. It's part of who you are. You are a sinner. 
You were born a child of wrath, not a child of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus here and to you and I, you must be born again. Why must? There's no other way. The first birth got you into this fix. We are by nature children of wrath. Look at verse number 18. He says, we're condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Look at verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Jesus was very clear here. Without a new birth, you are without hope. You're a sinner under the wrath of God. Verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell whence it cometh or where, whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He says, You can't control the wind. You can't control the Spirit. You can see it. You can hear it. You can see what it does, but you can't control it. You cannot will yourself to be born again. You cannot say, I'm just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make myself born again. No, it's a work of God. And again in verse 9, Nicodemus asks again, how? He says in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Your education left you high and dry. Nicodemus was a highly educated man. But his education could not give him the new birth. The answer is not learn more. The answer is not be more educated. The answer is not get a degree. Jesus said the answer to not being born again. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus said. First of all, let me say what he didn't say. He did not say, when Nicodemus said, how can these things be? He didn't say, well, it's all up to you. It's your faith, your repentance, your works, your conversion. You, you, you do it. It's all up to you, Nicodemus. Nor did he say, well, it's all up to God. I mean, God chose before the foundation of the world who would be saved and who wouldn't. And so you really don't have a choice, do you, Nicodemus? He didn't say that either. What did he say? Follow me in verse 13. Actually, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus went back to an Old Testament account found in the book of Leviticus. I'm sorry, book of Numbers. And if you want to read it later, you'll find it in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And he takes this Old Testament account of what took place And he gives Nicodemus this answer. First of all, he says two things about himself. He says, one, I came down from heaven. Look at verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He said, I came down from heaven. Jesus is alone in this. He's establishing, again, who he is. Listen, 
All the other teachers, all the other rabbis, all the other religious leaders, they're from down here. Every religious leader in this world was born just like Nicodemus, born of the flesh, and needs to be born again. Jesus is from above. He said, I came down from heaven. Jesus, we just celebrated Christmas, was conceived and born miraculously. He is the Son of God. And he says to Nicodemus here, I came down from above and I will be lifted up on a cross. Jesus uses that phrase lifted up two other times in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and chapter 12, and he's referring to the form of death that he will die. And he says here that over in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, Moses or God was upset, he was angry with the children of Israel. And the Bible says he sent fiery serpents among them. And these serpents, these venomous snakes, began to bite people. Now, I don't, I'm not afraid to tell you, I am scared to death of snakes. I don't like snakes. Why do I live in Texas? Because well, i got a grandbaby here. <laughs> That's a big reason. I hate snakes. This would have been the worst situation for me to be in. Now, I don't know, maybe you're a brave soul, you go pick them up, you know. I, I, if I see a snake, I go the other way. Okay, I don't like snakes, especially venomous ones. Someone was talking to us the other day about baby snakes and how potent they are because they just release all their enemy. I said, well, I don't want to be around a baby snake or a full-grown or grandma or any of them. But these snakes were going in the camp and they were biting people and people were dying. Now, get the picture. You step outside your tent, and there are bodies on the ground, writhing in pain, swollen, dying. And you're looking everywhere you step. I don't want to get bit. Maybe you stay holed up in your tent, and then one crawls into your tent, and so then you decide it's not safe there either. You're susceptible to this snake or these snakes. And someone comes running in and says, Hey, Moses has provided a cure. He's made a serpent of brass, and he's lifted it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. And he says, Whoever looks on that serpent that's been bitten by a snake, anyone who looks on that serpent will live. Would you go? That message is repulsive. The snake's the problem. Why do you want me to look at a snake? That's ludicrous. How can looking on a brazen serpent on a pole heal me of this venom? But you start hearing stories about people. Hey, my uncle was bit. He was dying. We took him down to the middle of the camp. He looked, and guess what? He's fine. And you hear another story. And another story. It's just like the gospel. Folks, the gospel is repulsive to our nature. It is repulsive to our pride. It says to you, you're no good. You're a sinner. Not only are you no good, your mother was no good. And your grandmother. And your grandfather. 
When I was a kid, you know, you talk, talk about somebody's mother, it was fighting words. The gospel says your mother is a teardown. You're a teardown. It's repulsive. But it's true. And those who respond in faith and go and look at the serpent, they're made whole. And those who respond to Jesus and the gospel message and look by faith are made whole. They are healed of their disease. They are forgiven of their sins. They are no longer under the curse. All things are passed away. All things are become new. They've been born again. Nicodemus was repulsed, I'm sure, as are many at the gospel. The gospel is a message of grace, not of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, which brings us to verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave a gift. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, Barabbas or Nicodemus, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first time Jesus spoke those words, He spoke them to a man whom He had just told, your life's a tear down. You must be born again. How? Well, you can't do it. But here's how. Here's a gift. Gifts are funny things. We just celebrated Christmas. Probably everybody in this room got or received or gave a gift. When you give a gift or when you receive a gift, there's not a price tag on it unless you're mom and dad. You, know, you get a gift from your kids, you probably paid for it. But when you receive a gift, there's not a tag on there that says you owe $125. No, it's what? Free. Say that with me. It's free. But guess what? Somebody purchased that gift. No gift is free. All gifts are paid for. They're either made or purchased by the giver. The giver pays for the gift. The receiver gets it free, else it's not a gift. If I gave you a gift today and said, I'd like $10 for that, please, I would be a televangelist. No. Um, I would not be giving you a gift. I would be selling you a product or a service. Gifts don't cost you anything. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It cost him dearly. He was lifted up as a serpent on a pole. He became our serpent. He became our sin. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me close with this. Paul wrote a very interesting Note at the end of the second chapter. Now, when Paul wrote Galatians, it wasn't written in chapters. Somebody years later did that. 
And I think they did a pretty good job, and I'm glad they did because it helps me find things. <laughs> you know, if you didn't have chapter 2, verse 20, you'd be looking all over, where is that verse? But at the end of chapter 2, he says this, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now when he says Christ is dead in vain, that word literally means for no purpose. In other words, what Paul is saying here is is if righteousness, if a right standing with God, if you could be right with God by the law, by God's law, then Christ died for no reason. It was foolish. He died like a fool. Those are strong words. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, you cannot be right with God in your own righteousness by your keeping the law. And listen, you can make up your own laws, but they're going to be inferior to God's laws. And he said you can't even keep God's laws and be right with God. Why? Because you're born dead in sins. Your problem isn't so much that you're a sinner. The problem is you're dead. You have no spiritual life. You must be born again. The only way that can happen, you can't do it, is it's a work of God, and He gives it to you in a gift at Calvary. He gives it to you and I out of love. God so loved us that He gave to us His only begotten Son. That we should not perish, but have this everlasting life. To frustrate the grace of God is to prevent it from doing what it does. That's what frustration is. You want to do something, but you can't. You're frustrated. The grace of God wants to save you, wants to forgive you, wants to give you eternal life. But it can't if you're trying to do it yourself. We frustrate the grace of God by doing for ourselves or attempting to do for ourselves what only the grace of God can do. So how do we conclude here today? We're entering into a brand new year starting day after tomorrow. We saw some resolutions up on the board. I thought that was pretty clever. What's the conclusion of today's message? Well, if you're not born again, the point is pretty simple. You need to be born again. You need Christ. You need to come to Him and look like those Jews looked at that serpent on a pole. Look by faith to Jesus. He gave Himself for you to save you from your sins to give you eternal life, and to restore fellowship with God. Look to Jesus today. Call upon Him. Believe on Him. Turn from your own efforts to save yourself and to be right with God because you can't be. And say, Jesus, I give up. I'm a sinner. And I can't change that. Hardest thing you'll ever do is to try to do right. The hardest thing you'll ever do is to try to not sin. 
You ever just made a conscious effort to not sin? I tried that once. Lasted till about noon. At least I think I did. You're a sinner and you can't fix it. But God did. God fixed it at the cross. He took your sins and He punished Jesus for them. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. The gift of God is eternal life. He wants to give you that life. Will you let Him? Will you receive Him? If you are born again, what's the point? Remember who you are. You're God's child. Don't forget that. Don't go about your busy life in 2019 forgetting who you are. You are His. He's your Father. He loves you. He cares for you. You are here representing the family. Remember who you are. You're God's child. You're a cherished member of God's family. A commissioned servant of God's kingdom. Live every day free from sin. Seeking God's kingdom first and telling people everywhere the good news about Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful to call you our Father. We're just, I, I think about that day when you made me your child. I remember it very clearly. Lord, I'll never forget that, and I don't ever want to live a day without acknowledging you as my Father. I pray right now, Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know you as Father, does not have your Son Jesus as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that they would give up their righteousness and take yours. And I pray for every Christian in this room that would be, would be forever humble and grateful and remember every day of 2019 who we are. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In just a moment we're going to sing. I invite you to come. Get a place here at the altar. Maybe you're a Christian. Dedicate 2019 to your Father, your Heavenly Father, and thank Him for your salvation. If you're not saved, I'd be happy, and others would be too, to take the opportunity to show you from the Scriptures how today could be your day, your birthday, your new birth into God's kingdom. As our instruments begin to play, I'll ask you to stand. Stand with me if you would. Father, we ask your blessings on this time of reflection. And thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.